Everything about writing is exciting. The driving need to tell stories that's burning inside you, the head-banging compulsion to make every word, sentence, and paragraph authentic, and most importantly, the magic that happens when the imaginary people in your head become real to other people. That's where I come in. I'm Maddie Margarita, the host of Character Floss, an entertaining deep dive into the psyche of writers and the compelling characters they create. My guest today is David Corbett, the award-winning Edgar Anthony McCavity-nominated author of six novels, his latest, The Long Lost Love Letters of Doc Holliday. David has written short stories and two nonfiction novels, including The Art of Character, creating memorable characters for fiction, film, and TV, which makes him the perfect guest for our inaugural podcast. Welcome, David. Nice to talk to you, Maddie. Thanks for um, having me. Today, I thought we would talk killers, thrillers, and puppies. Uh, we had our one-week anniversary with the little guy yesterday, and he is learning. That is the good news. Um, but there's a lot of trial and error involved in that. Like today, he discovered that jumping off a three-foot wall onto the concrete patio oh. is not the wisest move. He yeah. still doesn't understand why we don't want him to drink the water out from the bottom of the flower pot. And, um, and he still doesn't understand why the old dog doesn't want to play with him. And uh, he's just, he says, well, maybe I'll just try harder, not realizing that that really isn't the solution whatsoever. Well, there's <laughs> so, a life lesson right there. As with all things with little ones, it's just going to take some time and repetition and so on and so forth. You know, which is, again, much like our talks about character, which is so many of our stories are learning experiences. This is how the character, you know, finds out about herself or about her world in a distinctly new way because of challenges she never anticipated. Well, and I know we had talked a little bit about your experience as a private investigator. Um, and prior to that, your foray into academia. So, and and how both of those experiences inform your writing or how do you think your writing and your characters have evolved i remember after i'd finished the first novel i i realized i had no idea what a plot was i had managed to tell a pretty compelling story but i didn't understand that the, the mechanics whatsoever so i boned up on that and the second novel benefited from that study but as far as characters were concerned i have to say that i've always been guided by a sense of real people that I have met and trying to use them as composites for the characters that I create. And I don't think that's changed much because that always roots me in, in emotional truth. And I think that's where all good characters really come from. Has your appreciation for writer, other writers changed? And do you find yourself um, looking at different authors now for different reasons than you did maybe when you wrote The Devil's Redhead? Not so much then, but before. You know, in college, I didn't study English. I took maybe a couple English courses. Uh, I studied mathematics, and mainly because stumbled into a program, the honors math program. And but when I did, I met an amazing group of men who've been incredibly instrumental, not just in in mathematics, but in teaching. You know, very much the kind of teacher I am was informed by the kind of teachers they were for me. And it was probably the most brilliant, generous, selfless, helpful, creative group of individuals I've ever met. It really taught me not only how to be intellectually honest, because it's really hard to lie in mathematics. It's not impossible, but it's very hard. And that was an incredibly 
great education in problem solving. And a novel is nothing if not a big fat problem to solve. So the math background was really good for that. But I, I then had a fellowship in linguistics. But when I got to grad school out here in Berkeley, I quickly realized that I just felt I needed to get out of school. I was one of those middle class kids uh, who had always done well on standardized tests. You know, the, the most exciting words I had ever heard were, you may break the seal and begin. And I realized that that had become a trap for me. You know, I could easily seal myself up in the ivory tower and never have to face a lot of what ordinary people really have to face in their lives. So I decided to get out. And uh, as I often say, I needed to get my nose bloodied and my heart broken. And I went out and uh, got a job with the law firm as a paralegal and began studying acting. I didn't start reading crime fiction until I'd gotten a job as a private investigator, which happened a couple years into my stint as a paralegal. It was actually two friends from, from acting class who, uh, when I began waffling, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue in acting or whether I wanted to write because I'd written some short stories. And they said, you know, if you want to write, you should get a job where we're working because you can't beat this place for material. And private investigation firm, Palladino and Sutherland in San Francisco. And so I pestered them for nine months until they finally hired me. And they actually said I was the most persistent applicant they'd ever had. It became a life-changing event. Because this is where I really did find a way to learn about the world in a truly unique way. And I decided these would be my years at sea. I may not get to write every day or write as much as I'd like, but I would see the world in such a unique fashion that it would inform my writing for the rest of my life. And that was certainly true. Now, you were a PI for 15 years. Is that more or less. I, I think I worked for Paladino and Sutherland for something like 13 years. 13 years. And I continued working with my wife in that capacity. We had a little law practice, my late wife. And I did, the joke was, she's the law, I'm the office. Um, <laughs> she was the lawyer. I did everything that, any, that you could do without a bar card. And um, we just had a little estate planning probate practice. Uh -huh. and, um, well, and I still did investigative work, but it wasn't strictly investigation. I did everything else too. What was it about you that made you so good at that job? You know, I don't know. I didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. I just got into it. It was, I think that there was a competitiveness to it that I hadn't really sensed to myself. I mean, I played football um, in high school. And so that competitive spirit came back in a big way. And I just realized that I wanted to get the interview. I wanted to get it. Um, I wanted to get at the truth. And, uh, and I was good at it. You can, teach, you can teach anybody how to be an investor, except for one thing. And that is how to get people to talk to you. You either have that or you don't. And if you don't have it, you'll never be a good investigator because that's really what the job is all about. And, um, and that was an experience. I, had to, I ended up having to speak to people of all stations of life, from you know, the, the woman who was the pet sitter for marijuana smugglers to the CEO of a corporation that was being sued because the, the chief executive had had an affair with the dominatrix. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you... It just you can't have, write this stuff. You, you, you have the whole gamut, you know? So it's... Um, and I'll, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. So here I am. My job is basically asking questions. But I grew up in a family where one person was clearly the most important per person in the family. It was my mother. And she sort of held court and didn't necessarily, I mean, I sort of held court. And you know, it wasn't that I was uninteresting, but I was sort of, sort of dominated the conversation. And she was saying, you know, why don't you ask questions of other people? And I kind of went, you know, it is kind of strange, isn't it? You do this as your job. It's not like you're incapable. 
So what's the problem? And it changed, you know, how I interact with people socially. I just became more curious about other people. And I was something one of my girlfriends said in my 20s, which is you don't know yourself by yourself. I don't see how you may not be clear on how you're coming across. And it was, you know, so I, I realized I probably wasn't where you were going with that question, but it just came to my mind. Yeah, and no, but I love the answer. I mean, I always feel like when I'm talking to other writers, I parse my words carefully because I'm thinking, oh my God, they're not listening to what I'm saying. They're listening to what I what they think I'm really thinking and, and why I'm saying it. And I sometimes get all tangled up in that thought process as opposed to what I'm trying to communicate because I know that writers mind other people. They just can't help it. You know, there's a certain amount of distance or observation or objectivity. I'm not sure what it is. When you talk to somebody who's really interesting, you start to really start looking below the surface for all these things, whether they're imaginary or real. And it does impact the way that you, at least sometimes for me, the way that I interact with other people. From an interviewer, Fusilli, who writes the pop and jazz articles for the Wall Street Journal, and is also a wonderful crime writer, just a, a marvelous writer. And he talks about interviewing rock stars. And he says that, I, don't, I never get to talk to Neil Young. I talk to the Neil Young who presents himself in my interview. That is useful to them. And yet, when you can get someone who's candid and, and thoughtful, and they're willing to open up or even blunder in the course of the interview as they're trying to figure out what they think about something, those are the interviews that are always the most interesting. They're always the ones that are most memorable and that have the greatest impact on, on the audience. It's, it's true. And I find that that's the same as characters, that that relates to character as well. And I think when you read a lot, you see those characters that are self-consciously themselves as presented by the author. And then on occasion, you find those characters that will reveal themselves to you. And those are the characters that stay with you. Um, well, there's, that, that's something I learned from uh, a wonderful screenwriter named Gil Dennis. But he, uh, he did the screenplay for the Johnny Cash biopic, Walk the Line. Oh, that was great. Yeah. And he talks about when he was interviewing Johnny Cash for the, uh, the story. The questions he asked were, what was your moment of greatest sorrow? And Johnny said it was when my brother died when I was nine. So what was your moment of greatest triumph? He said, it was when the entire family performed together at the Grand Ole Opry. There's two really fascinating takeaways. First of all, what, what Gil said was, okay, now I had an arc. So, you know, I've got a story here mm -hmm. you know, going from, you know, great loss and sorrow to triumph, which is great. There's a, a wonderful story and, compl and complex because shame is along the way and there's a lot of false, you know, uh, false moves and, and missteps. But moments when the rational brain was at a loss for how to deal with what was in front of him. You know, the, the, the death of his brother when he's nine years old, you know, and suddenly, you know, hitting his wife in front of the kids and seeing them there and, and the shame that just shot up, you know, within him and the joy that he felt when the whole family was there. And when you do that, the character is revealed in a very raw, naked way. I wouldn't say necessarily a truer way, but certainly, again, more helpless, more dependent on things that are outside of their control? Well, how do they respond? What is, you know, how does that um, change how they deal with their lives and other circumstances that are similar? Okay. But the other thing that's fascinating about it is when you look at Johnny's answers, you know, one was his brother, one was, you know, involved his wife and the kids, and one was the whole family. There's a theme there. Right. And that theme was family. And it's weird 
And I don't have an explanation for this. But when you explore a character's moments of helplessness and do so honestly and as, as, and, and as deeply as, as you can, you will almost always find a thematic thread running through them that sort of defines the character's core problem. And meaning the sort of the balance between their pursuit of the promise of life and their protecting themselves from the pain of life and this equilibrium or disequilibrium that they've created in their lives to balance those two things. And the story is gonna present them with a new disruption that's gonna upset that equilibrium. And they're going to have to somehow find a way to achieve what they want in the light of this change and how they have always habitually dealt with, well, this is what I'm gonna to do to protect myself. And this is what this is what I'll allow myself to pursue. Well, that's going to be different now, but it's still going to be based on those moments of helplessness and the habits of behavior that developed from them. So, anyhow, that's well. I think that's have, really interesting, particularly as it relates to Doc Holliday. Um, you know, and and the letters, the re, the way he reveals himself, um, or reveals or justifies himself, I guess, depending on how you look at um, the letters and the topics um, to Maddie, to his cousin. How did, how did you decide, uh, or can you talk a little bit about the story and um, Doc Holliday and how you came up with him, how you, how you built him? Well, first of all, I had, I've been obsessed with Doc Holliday since I was a kid. Uh, there's a TV show when I was younger called uh, Life and Times of Wyatt Earp. And I always thought Doc was the most fascinating character because he was both good and not so good. Um, he was a gentleman, and yet he was a rogue. And I just found those contradictions fascinating. And I still do. I think he is the iconic American anti-hero. But then in the late 80s and early 90s, there began a real new scholarly approach to the Old West. Um, and in particular, one book uh, by Paula Marx called And to Die in the West, which is about the, the gunfight at the OK Corral which sort of demythologized the Earp brothers, uh, looked at the Arizona side of the story a little bit more carefully and a little bit more uh, sympathetically, but still was very accurate and very, and was from a historian's perspective, not a storyteller's perspective, which was sort of what I was waiting for. And then in the early 2000s, a biography of Doc came out from Gary Roberts, which is just wonderful. I mean, if anybody's interested in Doc Holliday, I cannot recommend this biography more highly. It's really, really well written. It's carefully researched. Um, so I finally felt I had his story and a manner in which I felt I had the truth underneath my legs, or as close to the truth as I could hope to get. Now, the most interesting thing about Doc, from my perspective, being raised a good Catholic boy in Columbus, Ohio, was that throughout his life, he corresponded with his cousin, who became a Catholic nun. Uh, her name was Maggie. She took the name Sister Melanie when she entered the Sisters of Mercy. and she became the inspiration for the character Melanie in Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell was related to both Doc and Maddie, and, uh, and she knew Maddie through most of her life. Um, the choice of the name Melanie is interesting, because one of the theories of why Doc and Maddie didn't get together, because they apparently were very close, the families denied they were lovers, but I'll get into that a little bit more later, but one of the reasons why they couldn't marry is because Maddie was Catholic. She would not give up her Catholicism. And in Catholicism, first cousins can't marry. So that was a problem that they basically just couldn't solve. 
but she chose the name Sister Melanie, and Saint Melanie married her first cousin. So that and a few other things began to make me feel as though, no, you know, these letters really were love letters, that they were tied romantically or certainly emotionally in a much more profound manner than anyone knows. The problem is the letters were destroyed. Um, Sister Maddie in particular uh, destroyed the most revealing of them, and the ones that were not revealing in any way were destroyed by her sister. So we don't have any record what they actually contained, which as a novelist, of course, just opens the door. Well, what if? So I, first of all, I had to create the romantic relationship between them. And, um, and that just, I just immersed myself in everything. Doc Holliday, he's a fascinating character. And, and the thing about him, I, I, I've talked to people who've written biographies and they say that, you know, you start off with a fascination with the character and about halfway through, you begin to find that you really don't like them as much as you thought you did. And about three quarters of the way through, you actively hate them. <laughs> so that the last quarter of the book is almost impossible to finish because of your just complete revulsion of everything nasty and dark and, and disgusting about the character that you never knew before. That didn't happen with Doc. I mean, you pretty much go in knowing he's not that great a character. There were a couple disagreeable things I discovered that I did not know before. Um, but you're sort of starting from, you know, I, I, a realm that isn't all that favorable anyway. So you, that isn't surprising. What's, what's more surprising is the positive stuff. And there was one quote in particular that became my hallmark in depicting him. And it was from Wyatt Earp. And he said that, you know, Doc was a philosopher who liked playing the wag. I just love that, that he liked playing, you know, the, the sarcastic know-it-all. But truth of the matter is, he, he was really much deeper than that, much more thoughtful than that. And I felt that that's, that's what I wanted to portray in his letters. And that would be the side of him that he would reveal most comfortably to Maddie. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why I decided to take that route, because she was thoughtful. You know, she was a you know, very religious woman. And, um, and he was clearly incredibly fond of her. Uh, in fact, when he died, shortly before he died, he converted to Catholicism, as though to say, you know, I, since we didn't get to be together in this life, I'll, I'll wait for you in the next one. And his belongings were sent back to her. Um, she was so afraid of scandal that she had her, her uncle come and pick them up for her. But, um, which I, you know, there was, you talk about a Southern family that was just scandalized by Doc. Oh my God. Um, the holidays, yeah, some of them would not even admit that he was a relative. It, it's, so I, this, this is all part and parcel of the, of the Doc that I discovered, which was a, a much more thoughtful, philosophically inclined, but also bitter, dark. He had the same disease his mother died of, and he nursed his mother you know, through that disease, he knew how he was going to die. He was trained as a dentist. He, he understood the medical truth of his condition. Um, you know, he, yes, he was an alcoholic. That's how you self-medicated back then. The, uh, the alternative was laudanum, and he didn't want to go through it. He, he had friends who were, who were laudanum addicts and wanted no part of it. Uh, but he drank at least a quart of whiskey a day. Wow. His mother died, I think, at 36, and he made it to 38. So, you know, in, in your writings, you talk about characters having a moral compass and, you know, facing moral dilemmas in these stories. Again, we, we talked a little bit about my fascination with Doc Holliday. Even though the book is multi-layered and parts of it take place in the contemporary world and part of it takes place back in Doc Holliday's time, it's part Western, part legal thriller. But what, what do you think his moral dilemma was? It was how to believe in something true and noble 
uh, he'd seen the South defeated by the North, and um, he was a big, a devout believer in the Confederacy. He'd seen his mother die, the, the most wonderful woman in the world to him, um, and he was an only child. He saw her die of a disgusting disease, and then saw his father marry a mere three months afterwards, which by Southern standards is beyond scandalous, but did so. And a, a, a woman that was only seven years older than he was, Doc. I mean, you know, so basically a sister became his mother, his stepmother. Needless to say, they never got along. I think one of the, the big issues with Doc always was with his father. I, they never did reconcile. There was a sense of, uh, he had a sense of honor about him that no longer had anywhere to go. And so he carried it with him into the West where honor was often an afterthought. And I, again, I find that fascinating. Even though some people called him the touchiest drunk in the West, was known for just getting into scrapes with everybody. But even Bat Masterson, who acknowledged that aspect of his, of his character, said the odd thing was, was that nine times out of 10, it wasn't Doc's fault. People just saw him as a weakling, because, you know, he was consumptive. And he was a very good gambler, so they thought he was cheap. And he had felt no compulsion to hold his tongue. So, so like, he was basically a friendless man, except for Wyatt. And it's interesting that the one woman that he relates to becomes a sister of mercy, you know, mercy and forgiveness. And it seems like he was almost incapable of that, even to himself, even forgiving. Well, there is that. I mean, that there is a sense of, of, of self-reproach mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, a sense of guilt and being, and I think that evidence itself and in his concern for, for Maddie, concern is not the word I'm after, his, his love for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she represented a purity that I don't think he believed he deserved. And I think that haunted him. Wow. So you are such a great writer, but yet you're also a teacher. You teach writing. Are, mm-hmm. Do you edit as well? Yeah, I do. And I think of editing as a kind of teaching. I always feel an obligation, not just to say it's not working, but to suggest ways. So you might want to think of this, because I can almost always do the plumbing and realize, okay, this is where you've gone wrong. But I also know that they've got to solve it. And if I solve it for them, they're not going to learn. So as a teacher and an editor, what advice would you give people, writers who are listening to us have this conversation today in terms of a checklist for their characterization or maybe like three to five ways to deepen or make their characters resonate after the story is told? Well, you know, I've written two books about this. So can you you capsulize that? (laughs) This is the Writer's Digest, five bullet points on on how to write the Bible. Uh, So. well, the You're an editor, is, so I, I assume you can do this. The, the most important thing is you need to tap into why the character thinks he or she is alive. You know, what is their dream of life? What kind of person do they be? And how do they want to live their life? And you have to somehow, and I don't, I, not information, get a picture, an image. Sometimes I even use music as an image of, for them, what would be the perfect life, the perfect state of existence, both in terms of identity and connection to others and circumstances, you know, big house, small house, country, city, to be, you know, a humble servant of the truth or to be the leader of a great nation or whatever is their idealized sense of themselves. That's the first thing. And then the next question is, they're probably not living up to that. Why not? What's, what's holding them back? You ask those two questions and you'll be well on your way to having a much more profound understanding of your character. I appreciate your time today. I think that's a great place to stop and a thoughtful place to stop. 
thank you so much for this. This is great. I, I am honored to be your, your first guest, and I hope there are many more. Many thanks to the talented David Corbett for sharing his space and giving us his insights into writing. To David and his books will be listed in our show notes. Also, if you're interested in finding out more about me and my work and appearances, please check out the show notes. You've been listening to Character Floss, a podcast for readers and writers. Let us help you discover your next favorite author. Thank you.